The Nerdalogs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy based on shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Try to keep your stories around five minutes, laugh at jokes, cry if appropriate, and applaud everyone who has the guts to sit here, tell a story, and come out as a nerd. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Arnault. And welcome to a very special end-of-the-year episode of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. It's special because this is one of two episodes that were handpicked to be like a kind of best-of compilation of our first year in existence as a podcast. Um, now, it's important to note that best-of, in this sense, doesn't mean like a competition, like this wasn't picked by voting. Actually, this episode was compiled by me. Um, these are some of my favorite stories throughout the year. I thought it would be cool to do like a producer's pick episode, so that is exactly what you're listening to now. So in addition to me presenting some of my favorite stories and songs, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I like these, why they stuck with me, uh, and I'm going to say a few nice things about the people who told and sing them. So we're going to start with, uh, so something I love at the live shows is when everybody sings along to a song. It's just super great. It's the coolest thing in the world. This is one of my very favorite sing-alongs that we've done at Your Stories, led, of course, by the amazing Dwight Hassler, who makes the live shows with his presence. Uh, this is a Garth Brooks song, not a country guy, but because of Dwight, I really ended up loving this song, which is something that happens a lot. So uh, this is Friends in Low Places. Blame it all in my roots. I showed up in boots. Ruined your black tie fair. The last one to know. The last one to show. I was the last one you thought you'd see there. And I saw the surprise and the fear in his eyes when I took his glass of champagne. I toasted you, said, honey, we may be through, but you'll never hear me complain, cause I got friends in low places where the whiskey drowns and the beer chases my blues away, and I'll be okay, yeah, I'm not big on Races think I slip on down to the oasis co I got friends in low places don't belong then I've been there before everything's alright I'll just say goodnight and I'll show myself to the door yeah, I didn't mean to cause a big scene just give me an hour and then well I'll be as high as that ivory tower but you'll never know Chases my blues away And I'll be okay
in low places. So speaking of sing-alongs, uh, another one of my favorites happened in this episode that I think not as many people as usual listen to, uh, because we didn't record it live, this was like our only kind of in-studio episode, uh, we interviewed the Core Res Theater Troupe, which has some great, great creative people in it, and it was super fun, and uh, this is one of the songs we decided to do for the episode at the behest of Mr. Bobby Hoffman, who is a great guy, great singer, I think he should sing in public a lot more, and uh, what's really cool about this track to me is the way that the whole kind of theater company joins in on the chorus, uh, which includes Allison McWilliams Brooks, who you might have heard on the show, uh, Julie Pearson, and Jeremy Connie, who's one of my best friends. So, yeah, this is super fun. Uh, I think more people should go back and listen to this episode and enjoy this song. Hey, it's Tom, it's Bob, from the office down the hall. Good to see you, buddy, how have you been?
Yeah. And you thought that'd go bad. All right, we're going to kick off the stories with one from our sports episode from uh, Charlie Madsen. He's a Chicago improviser, comedian, great dude. Um, what I like about this story is the scope of it. Like, Charlie's going to talk about basically setting up a fantasy Madden football league. A lot of people play fantasy football. A lot of people play Madden. Charlie has built a world out of the John Madden video game universe. Like, as someone who loves things like, you know, DC Comics, fictional history, probably too much, this blows me away. I absolutely loved hearing Charlie talk about this. And it's something that, honestly, like, part of me wishes I had the dedication to do. But then another part is like, I don't know how I could do this and still be, like, a functional person, which I think Charlie touches on a little bit, too. Not that he's not a functional person, but there's a neat kind of twist at the end of this monologue that I really like. So, yeah, Charlie Matson, everybody. When the topic of nerdologues was sports, I realized that there was no better place to fully reveal my secret hobby. A secret that includes video games, yeah. Excel spreadsheets, <laughs> statistical analysis, and fan fiction. <laughs> I have a slight obsessive nature when it comes to classification and organization. If I were a Batman rogues gallery, I would be the classifier. My alter ego would be Dr. Jonathan Ruh, or Jean Ruh for short. <laughs> I've never really watched or played sports as a kid. Uh, while the Broncos were winning their second Super Bowl, I was busy defeating the Sorceress Sisters Kotake and Kume in the Spirit Temple of Hyrule. <laughs> In college, I had to start making new friends, and sports was such a large part of the conversation that I could ignore it no longer. The fastest way to learn about the rules of sports, the teams of sports, and the players of sports was to play NBA Live and Madden on PlayStation 2. <laughs> Slowly, I learned about three in the key and the value of an athletic tight end. The guy who blocks the line, then also you can use as a receiver. Just, oh! Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. uh, I played these games constantly because they were fun, also because they gave me more things to classify. I started to get an imagination about my players and teams in these games, and I realized that these were essentially just action figures, and I could organize them to different places. I started to think how fun it would be to make trades and reorganize teams. What if scenarios started running through my head, and I started to refurbish my rosters? In 2005, this blossomed into a retroactive continuity of both the NBA and the NFL. <laughs> Seven years ago, it was just scribbles on a piece of binder paper in my law class. <laughs> but now, for the first time in public, I will present to the people my private fantasy leagues. <laughs> Every year when Madden is released to the public, most people are excited to play the game. I am excited to update the rosters and the ratings with the improved year-over-year -year basis of statistics and numbers. Alright, so, this is the depth chart. This is just the top portion. <laughs> this is a screenshot because it's the most I could fit on this page. Sorry, podcast listeners. This is a partial screenshot of my depth chart. Seven years ago, I did a fantasy draft and I decided to stay consistent from year-over-year. So every Labor Day weekend, I spend about 52 hours. <laughs> completely organizing every roster to fit the team of the year prior, set up the incoming rookie class, and sign free agents. During this time, I also multitask by catching up on Fresh Air and WTF podcasts. All right. So this is the current division standings of the 2013 NFL season by conference, division, and league. All wins and losses are determined through objectivity. <laughs> every week, every game is played on Madden, and I make it a CPU versus CPU, so the talent of the player speaks for itself. <laughs> Sadly, my Bears are 0-6. But it's a tough schedule, and they have Matt Castle as a quarterback, so... <laughs> what are you going to do? All right. Here are the line charts and graphs of the seasons mapped out over a weekly win basis on each division. This is a week by week. The second set of lines is actually last year, so you can actually do a comparison. So if you zoom, you see the Bills aren't doing as well as they did last year. This is the line graphs of the maps of the total wins for each and every team of the past eight years of my life. 
the Jets and the 49ers are consistently the best, thanks to Mate, uh, Brady and Manning, retro, uh, you know, respectively. I actually have bolded the best teams over the entire conference, and then you'll see the dashed lines are actually the worst teams over time, which was the Falcons or the Redskins. The Redskins, yeah. Redskins. Redskins. Yeah. Well, Roethlisberger actually almost won him a title two years ago, so... <laughs> say almost. Here are the Super Bowl champions from the last three years. Aaron Rodgers, Maurice Jones, Drew, and Calvin Johnson actually beat Roethlisberger last year. And then Erlacher and the Bills over the Seahawks. And then it goes on and on. Uh, for fun, I actually analyzed the statistics from the past ten years to determine who would be the winners from 95 to 2002. And Brett Favre and his Cowboys won a lot. <laughs> Um, the NFL season is swift, and it's interesting to see the parody of the wins every year. But this can only be resolved by actually playing the video game itself, which is fun. Uh, it's a joy to watch, too. I wish I could say the same about the NBA. <laughs> the last time we spoke... Uh, oh, I just turned back a page. Uh, let's see. The NBA is less time-consuming because there's only 50... 15 players per roster as opposed to 53, but there are too many games. So last year I decided if I'm going to be the commissioner of my fake league, I might as well make up the rules to my fake league. <laughs> so now the NBA season does not begin until Christmas Day, and we only play 65 games every year. <laughs> Here is the view of every single team's schedule from the last year. This is not determined by video games, this is their actual schedule. Um... And because they have eliminated season mode, I had to create the season myself. Oh my Not every game is played on the PlayStation 3, but wins and losses are determined by an average of points per game in a head-to-head -head basis. Of course, the best teams uh, have losses as well. Otherwise, it, you know, it couldn't be completely objective. Uh, and Kobe Bryant would be completely undefeated with his New York Knickerbockers. <laughs> Here's a snapshot of the most competitive division this year. This is the Eastern Conference Athletic Division, uh, Atlantic Division. The numbers are points per game totals that I update weekly during my lunch break. <laughs> While watching television in this other review, I multitask. <laughs> also, the NBA playoffs became too predictable, so I instituted a single elimination tournament where the worst eight teams in both conferences would play for the eighth spot in the playoffs. Uh, and I also made the second prize the number one pick in the draft because, frankly, the lottery is complete garbage. <laughs> so, of course, we had some problems where the Hawks just kept winning because they were just so good. And that's just the draft. I mean, they just made good choices year over year. <laughs> um, out of curiosity, I also analyzed the stats from 1996 on so that these historic championships runs of Michael Jordan and his Los Angeles Lakers... <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, uh... Nerd! Uh, 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 <clears throat> and next year I'm actually considering bringing back the Vancouver Grizzlies and the Supersonics. <laughs> Smiley. <laughs> so, uh, to wrap this up, I know I've covered a lot of ground here and most of it is complete gibberish. Uh, because I'm speaking my own crazy language. <laughs> for the past five minutes. <laughs> but this is what I do every single day. And it's a form of relaxation and stress relief. And it should be healthy. My therapist says it's good. <laughs> but it's slowly becoming a distraction and an obsession. And it's problematic because I spend 12 hours in one day building one roster when I should be, you know, writing something or reading something. Uh, as fellow nerds, I'm sure you guys understand the fine line between hobby and obsession. <laughs> and that it doesn't really exist. Um, but this hobby has no social, spiritual, or health benefit to me. Uh, the mental benefit is completely debatable. And I wish I had something profound to conclude about this, but um, I couldn't finish it because I had to help Drew Brees and his Lions beat... Win a game this morning, so <laughs> that's as far as I got. Thank you. All right, so up next we've got John Lester. Uh, John is also one of my best friends. Um, what I love about John and this story in particular, which, by the way, it is about me. Um, that's not why I picked it. John is a forensic accountant. Like he travels the globe, ensuring compliance uh, with accounting rules. And yet, for whatever reason, when he steps in front of a room that's half comedians, like, he commands the room. Like, John is such an incisive 
and funny storyteller all the time, uh, I kind of feel in a way like maybe he missed his calling, or else he is, like, by far the coolest dude in his batch of forensic accountants, which is probably true anyway, but, man, this story is real, real funny, um... I love it. So, yeah, here's John talking about Breaking My Spirits. So, my story uh, actually involves Mr. Eric Garneau. Um, so, uh, as Eric just said, we're friends. Um, Eric and I have known each other for ten years. We're uh, <laughs> we, uh, we're roommates in college. Eric was in my wedding party in my wedding, so um, we're very good friends. Um, so, uh, in college... Uh, we lived in an apartment that was the two of us and two more people, and we were all pretty nerdy, you know, computer science, chemistry, English, and I guess a business major, but I, I'm the exception. So, uh, <laughs> so we, uh, we all had video game systems we had combined into our communal living room that we all had, you know, all set up in there, but obviously we all were owners of our own systems, and we were the, the masters of our own systems. Uh, Eric was the owner of the GameCube, and Eric was the master of that system, and for about a year, we had been playing a game called uh, Mario Kart Double Dash. Uh, we had spent many hours on this, we had all become very good at it, but Eric was, of course, the master, owned all the records, uh, won more than he lost, and, you know, master of his domain. So, my two passions in college, aside from sleeping and not going to class, were uh, playing video games and drinking. Um, so, one Saturday night, uh, after another round of drinking, uh, I had come home, but I decided I was not so drunk that I would pass out. So, I grabbed one of my roommates, not Eric's, Bacardi Raspberries, the very manly drink. Again, there were four men in this apartment. Uh, I grabbed one, popped the top, and thought, I'm gonna play some Mario Kart. And I, th I powered it up, and I looked at that, uh, welcome screen, and I said... No, no, no. Not 50 cc's tonight. Tonight is a man's night. Tonight, we play 150 cc. Mirror mode. So, I played, and I vaguely remember playing. I remember there being a rainbow road at some point. And then I went to bed at whatever hour. Um... Next morning, you know, I was an early riser. I woke up at the crack of noon and uh, came back into the living room to see Eric sitting in front of the television. And he just gives me this stare that I've never seen before. <laughs> that The long, icy stare of death. And he points at the screen and in a tone of what you would give your pets when they make a mess on the carpet, what did you do? <laughs> and I thought, oh crap, I broke the GameCube. What did I do last night? I was like, did I open it and puke in it, deciding it needed to run faster? I don't know. But what he's pointing at is the screen, and it's the record screen. And for some reason, instead of them all saying ECG, Eric Charles Garneau, they say J-O-N on top of every single course <laughs> in 150cc mirror mode. Eric looks at me and goes, when did you do this? I was like, I don't know. He's like, no, I played this last night, and I had the records. What did you do? I'm like, well, I, I, I went and got drunk with Craig and Diane, and then I came back, and, oh yeah, I played Mario Kart. And... That is how I may have broken Eric's spirit in Mario Kart Double Dash. And this was eight years ago. And every time I tell this story, Eric still sees with anger. I, I believe those records still stand on your Mario Kart. Yes. So, uh, moral of the story, apparently I'm good at the legal kind of drunk driving. Uh, Alright, up now we've got a story from Andrew Bentley, who uh, a year ago when this was recorded was not uh, a member of the Nerdalogs, and now he is, so everyone make sure to welcome Andrew Bentley to the group proper when you can. Um, Andrew is a great guy and a great, great writer. Like, the reason this story is here is twofold, and one is that I wish that I could write a story like this. Um, two is that Andrew speaks a language that I I feel a lot of common ground with. Like, I 
am a really big music guy, and Andrew here is talking about his love of heavy metal, which is something that I also know a fair deal about. I'm maybe more of a hair metal guy than Andrew is, but I also, like, come from this background of just loving the shit out of, like, Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and stuff like that. And, um... Andrew's story is kind of like this great love letter to the genre that ends with a very uplifting but reasonable way to contextualize that, and I I just love it. So, man, this is a great story. Uh, it's kind of Chuck Klosterman-esque, and Klosterman is my idol, so for obvious reasons, I had to include this in the year-end wrap-up. So, Andrew Bentley, everybody. I'm, uh, I'm going to put on a t-shirt. Oh, yeah! Right here. Uh, this is an Iron Maiden t-shirt. Yeah, for those of you on the podcast, uh, if you go to Google and you type in Iron Maiden and Wicker Man, uh, you should get an idea of the shirt I'm wearing here. Uh, this shirt was my favorite shirt when I was in 10th grade. Uh, at 10th grade, it may go without saying... Uh, was not the year I lost my virginity. <laughs> uh, rather, uh, it was the year my battered blue disc man saw a perpetual rotation of Iron Maiden, Megadeth, and Halloween albums, punctuated by the occasional burnt CD from my LimeWire-using friends, which would install some new figure of interest in my ever-expanding pantheon of bombastic leather-clad Europeans. <laughs> Gamma Ray, Hammerfall, Sonata Arctica, Stradivarius, uh, each of these found a place in the soundtrack to my daily school bus commute. Prior to high school, my musical tastes had been more or less non-existent. Basically, Weird Al, Primus, whatever my sister happened to play through the walls of our bedrooms, and some old tapes, mostly musical soundtracks, my mom had thoughtlessly deposited with me years earlier, heedless of the social repercussions for a 13-year-old boy who, unironically, knows all the lyrics to Cats. <laughs> the magical Mr. Mistopheles may be able to make a knife or fork disappear, but he cannot do the same for an A-cup bra. <laughs> and, yet, I, uh, and yet I was destined to take my musical castration one step further, because in 2001, my friend Chris Rory's introduced me to Iron Maiden. I was skeptical at first, but this was Chris Rory's, whose track record included my first exposure to porn, D&D, firearms, and casual arson, all of which turned out to be pretty awesome. So I relented. The album was Brave New World, the first track, Wicker Man. I can't say I was converted on that first song, but the album is 72 minutes long, and by the end, I had been raptured into a new realm of musical appreciation. Now, to remind you all, the competition was not steep. Uh, this was 2001, a year when the list of bands burning up the radio included Crazy Town, Shaggy, Uncle Cracker, Creed, and, according to the internet, Train? <laughs> I... I, I don't know either, but apparently we loved it. Uh, hey, soul sister. <laughs> uh, at, at that point in my life, I owned easily less than 10 CDs. By the end of high school, the number was closer to 200. Overnight, I became a metalhead, a true believer, a jean-clad evangelist diligently hunched over Roxy OCD creator, crafting the perfect mix which would similarly lift the scales from the eyes of my benighted cohorts. <laughs> I had many loves. Iced Earth, with their 24-minute, three-track trilogy, cataloging a blow-by-blow -blow account of the three-day Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, Hammerfall, whose music revolved around the seemingly earnest belief that they were reincarnated Knights Templar, sworn to combat some undefined evil. Megadeth, whose frontman, Dave Mustaine, filled the space between his anti-government screeds with what sounded like the orgasmic grunts of a long-time emphysema patient. Stradivarius, perhaps the only charting band in history to have not one but two members named Timo, and whose adorable grasp of the English language led them to pen the lines, I know your name, you're called Mr. Mean, one thing I found out, you don't know beans. But... <laughs> but throughout it all, my greatest love remained Iron Maiden. Uh, to those of you who know a little something about metal, my preferred school of the genre should by now be obvious. Power metal. If you're not familiar with the term, banish all thoughts of corpse-painted church board earners or whiskey-drenched homoeroticism. <laughs> Hair metal might wear the lipstick, but power metal has the labia. <laughs> let, let me explain. Uh, <coughs> 
Well, for sure, some of it is po-faced balladry about dragon slaying and evil wizards, but the good stuff is surprisingly familiar material. Love, loss, longing. Much of it dealt with in an introspective and vulnerable way. And then there's the joyful, heartfelt, over-the-top presentation. To tell the truth, it's not that great a leap I made from Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> Power metal is basically show tunes with more guitar solos, double bass drums, and Scandinavians. <laughs> Unless the show in question is Mamma Mia, in which case, equal Scandinavians. Uh, the two forms share a love of soaring ballads, upbeat refrains, and theatricality. Uh, power metal's unvarnished torrent of awkward sincerity evokes the traditional conceit of musical theater, escalation to lyricism when the emotional content becomes too great for speech. Rent and Machines of Mental Design by Guardians of Time share all the same existential ruminations on mortality and identity. If you replace the AIDS with an insane CEO trying to achieve immortality by bonding with a self-aware global computer system, the two are practically identical. <laughs> I can poke all the fun I want at the ridiculous aesthetics of the genre, at its unmarketability, at the way most of their accents destroy the short I sound, universe, helicopter, etc. <laughs> but the fact remains, the music affects me, and with greater significance than their more respectable contemporaries. My musical taste these days is far more diverse, and some of the old classics don't get much play on my iTunes, but I still shiver when I hear the piano from Abandoned or the final sustain from the end of this chapter. I don't wear my Iron Maiden shirts. I have four. <laughs> anymore. But Bruce Dickinson is still one of my idols, not just for Iron Maiden, for the other things he's done, for being an Olympic-level fencer and the author of the children's series Lord Iffy Boat Race and a licensed 747 pilot who voluntarily flew Lebanese refugees out of the war zone to Cyprus during the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah conflict. Yeah. <laughs> but most of all, for doing what he loved, well after it stopped being cool. For many of these artists, what they do was a laughingstock before they even signed to a label. But they do it anyway, because it means something to them, and it means something to their fans. We're both nerds, but... Long before that became a common point of pride, they had embraced it. And their music reached something in a 14-year-old who was more interested in songs about Aldous Huxley in the movie Predator than he was in Getting Laid. So, while I am about to change out of this shirt, because it's ill-fitting and gaudy, I'm not going to throw it away. And I feel okay saying Iron Maiden's Final Frontier was one of the best new albums I heard last year. Because it was. It's not for everyone, but it's for me. And that's what music's about, right? That and Rum Tum Tugger. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And Bentley, everybody. Next to the story from Maura Foley, who is uh, another Chicago improviser. Um, also a, a really sharp writer. We're actually co-authoring a paper on the sociology of the X-Men, which is pretty rad. Um... So Mora, I think, well, let me start with this. My friend Chris Crotwell once said on Facebook, um, I wish everyone was your stories open all the time. Uh, this is one of the most emotionally bald stories that I think we've had at the show. It's the only one I can think of where someone actually cries during it. And um, this is Mora's only story. She just knocked it out of the park. I really appreciate that honesty. Um... And what's more, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals with loved ones. I'm kind of doing so now. It's not fun. I know where she's coming from, and, I mean, bless her for telling this story. I love it. Uh, Maura Foley. So my story is about how things smell. Um, <laughs> homes have smells. Their own smells. My home has the best smell. My house, and by my, I mean my parents' house, smells like mildly damp, freshly clean laundry, old books, and grass. My father says my mother has a nose like a bloodhound. It caused me a lot of anxiety as a teenager. I was always concerned she'd sniff out whatever indiscretion, alcohol, drug, or boy-related, <laughs> on my person the minute I got home. I swear she smelled my lack of virginity the moment it flew the coop. <laughs> um, but I, I admire her nose. Uh, my first distinct memory of my house in Minnesota is watching my mother breathe deeply over a bowl of freshly made applesauce testing to ensure that the mixture had the correct amount of cinnamon. Once, I spilled orange juice on the Berber carpet of our basement in Kansas City. 
the corner furthest from the stairwell, and my mother smelled it before she reached the bottom step. She smelled the mold growing in our Philadelphia House Foundation before the building inspector found it. Someday I'm going to write a TV cop drama about her and call it The Nasalist. <laughs> when we moved to Madison, my mother could smell something coming from the heating ducts, something no one else could smell. At first we made jokes like, Mom, maybe you're having a stroke! <laughs> then one night I was laying in her bed with her while she tip-tapped away at her computer and I smelled it. Uh, the, heat, the heating and air conditioning man came and he cleaned the ducts a couple times. Uh, but I was still able to smell it. Me and my mom were the only ones. I don't remember how the smell went away, but the one thing I do remember is I was incredibly proud because I realized I had my mother's nose. Um, there are some things that people don't know have a smell. Heparin has a smell. Heparin is a mild blood thinner nurses use to clean out IV lines. We still have prepackaged sterile syringes of it lurking in junk drawers and wicker baskets of band-aids in our house. Remnants of my dad's chemotherapy and the twice daily pick line flushes. Heparin smells like hospital. It's one of the many odors in the sadness bouquet known as hospital smell. <laughs> Everyone knows that smell. And if you've ever spent time in a hospital, you know it's very dominating. It is so pungent, it takes away your smell and replaces it with itself. During my dad's allopathic stem cell transplant, I hadn't visited for several days because sorority recruitment was going on. In a fit of frustration and cunning, I had forced myself to cry during a stupid bickering meeting about who would interview who during preference round. A sympathetic sister gave me a ride to the hospital to see my dad. You know something is really stupid bullshit when you'd rather be at a hospital. My mother had warned me that my dad wasn't conscious enough to recognize some people. And when I saw him, he did not recognize me. During the night, I'd rise from the inflatable mattress the nurses had set up on the floor of his room and lead my barely conscious father to the bathroom or force him to suck on the tube he needed to clean the sloughing skin and mucus from the inside of his mouth every half an hour. I would hug him, and that was the worst part. He didn't smell like my dad. He smelled like sick and phlegm and heparin and death. And I cried and cried and cried. And this time, I wasn't faking it. Like the sissy child I am, um, I'm still getting over feeling that helpless from that smell. I thought I was done and that it was over and that I was okay. Um, but work stress had started to make it worse and I hadn't been home since Christmas. I was working 70 hours a week, driven by a need to pay my dues. Fuck that phrase, by the way. <laughs> um, my cubicle smelled like glossy copy paper and stale Dunkin', du Dunkin Donuts coffee. My dad knew something was wrong, and in an effort to cheer me up, he came to visit. When he left, I went to strip the sheets off my bed, the bed that he had slept in while visiting, and I caught a whiff of my house's smell, the smell he carried with him from Madison, the smell the hospital had stolen from him. So I wrapped myself in the 600 thread count Martha Stewart sheets I'd bought myself with my first big girl paycheck. <laughs> I inhaled his smell and cried. I was 12 again, huffing the smell of a towel I'd stored deep in my duffel bag at sleepaway camp when homesickness was too much. All I wanted to do was go home. One prescription for Lexapro, six $200 therapist appointments, and one new job offer later. I'm doing much better. <laughs> um, I had a few days off in between my uh, last job, so I met my parents in Milwaukee for the day. They got lost trying to find me in Milwaukee's third ward, the place that I'd walked to when they inevitably ran late. They found me roaming the streets and honked the horn, and I heard a familiar, oh, hi, of my mom's voice. I opened the car door and hugged her, and there it was, that smell, on her denim jacket. This time I didn't cry, I just smiled. I got in the back seat, inhaled that smell again, and said, oh my God, am I glad to see ya. <laughs> so next you're going to hear a story from Sean Patrick Boyle who is uh, basically a recording engineer he's a great guy, married to one of my favorite people uh, just had a lovely baby uh, this is from our Propose a Theory episode um, now I, I picked these stories weeks ago but I'm recording this the day after the Connecticut school shooting um, and it may seem passe to mention that by the time you all hear this which is fuck to think about but uh sean's theory 
is that therapeutic AI will be one of the next big technological developments. And in light of what we've kind of seen this year, uh, I hope he's right. I mean, we all need to take better care of ourselves and each other. And uh, I think 2012 has proved that pretty well. Um, Besides the content, the idea of this story being great, Sean poses a question at the end. Uh, and it's the only time I can remember that the Your Stories audience sat in rapt silence. Like, there was actual tension. Like, you were waiting for the answer to drop. Um, so it's really well constructed in addition to being very well thought out. Um, I absolutely love this story. And I hope that maybe people get something out of it. I don't know. It's important. Sean Boyle. So my theory is that the next technological breakthrough the game changer won't be the ones we kind of think about and fantasize i love spaceships too bill but um we we are, we're already kind of picturing them so my theory is that that breakthrough will be therapeutic ai artificial intelligence that understands your fucking brain this kind of came from another theory that i kind of enjoy um um, I'm having a brain fart here. Uh, Raymond Kurzweil, singularity. Sing, the singularity, thank you. Um, so he theorizes that in the future we'll merge with technology and essentially be immortal is his big fantasy. But I kind of got stuck at immortality because I'm like, well, what's the point of making our lives longer if we're still just going to kill each other? Like, our life expectancy could be 200 years, but if someone shoots you in the head when you're 35, then that doesn't fucking mean anything. So, I actually kind of got stuck on the beginning part of his theory, is that he says in the year 2020, we will have completely engineered and mapped the human brain with computer programming. So, I kind of think that, to me, that says... It's kind of something dark and interesting to where does that mean every single thought a human can have can be represented with zeros and ones and reverse engineered and figured out? Can we figure out when Jerry Sandusky fucking got, became a pedophile and reverse engineer that and figure that out and just solve it? And then who cares how long we live because we'll live happier and we'll live peacefully and not hurt each other. And that's, that's what we shall strive for, not seeing who could last the longest, but seeing who could be the happiest the longest. And that's a really big challenge right now. Everyone struggles with it. I'm in a really great time in my life right now, and I'm so happy, and I'm just waiting for it to turn and to fall apart. Like you know, So I'm actually kind of thinking about getting therapy and, and taking that step. And so one of the things I thought of was, well, just to prove my theory is needed is, First of all, it's really hard to say you'll go get therapy. We have, we have egos. And then you're signing up to talk to a fucking stranger that you don't know. And you're going to, him or her, you're going to hate them, love them, or not connect, and then move on. And maybe you don't get help at all. Maybe James Holmes saw the wrong therapist, and it meant nothing. And what happened, happened. The second point is therapy is expensive right now. And if, we, if there's one thing that's proven is technology kind of is, af is affordable. You can, if you democratize it and mass produce it, everyone could get connected to this artificial intelligence. And then that is something you, everyone would be able to talk to. And, you know, maybe my father would not have ditched my fucking baby shower today because he's an insecure baby that can't be around his family. You know, it pisses me off that he... Not only did he miss it, but he had such a dark, scary reason to not go. He, you know, and just that emotional torment that I know he's going through, it bothers me. And he can't talk to anyone about it. He can't talk to me about it. He can't talk to a therapist. He's just stuck. He's just, he's just going to suffer. Nothing's going to change him. And I don't want more people to suffer that way. I don't want, you know, one of my good friends, Ed, committed suicide. And I don't want more people to have that deep of a darkness that that's their option. And third and finally, obviously, we need it. We just, I don't, I mean, it, if anyone here doesn't need some therapy, some psychological help or issue that, that, that you're afraid of, that you're either facing now or you're afraid of facing later, 
please raise your hand. I, I haven't met you, you know. So that's my theory. And um, in respect to the scientist, I actually have a test subject. So and um, my test subject is a little sensitive to volume. So I, I encourage everyone to please stay very quiet. Siri is sensitive. Okay. And also, just a callback to Raymond Kurzweil, he's the guy who invented the programming for um, computers to talk. So this, is, this right here is almost half his invention. Um, I'm thinking about suicide. Checking your location. Come on, Siri. Okay. One of these suicide prevention centers is a little ways from you. She found two suicide prevention centers near me right now. Thank you. So Nerdo Logs member Chris Geiger is going to close out the stories. Um, I've already talked at length uh, in person about how much I love this story. To me, this is the thesis statement, not just for Nerdo Logs, although it is that, but kind of for life. Like, this is Chris's It Gets Better monologue. Um, and it just is this four-and-a-half-minute encapsulation of absolutely everything that I believe about the future and about hope. I mean, that's the most important thing in the world. It's why I love Bruce Springsteen. It's why I love Grant Morrison's Superman stories. Uh, it's about hope, man. Uh, also... Chris references what I would say is indisputably the best Star Trek movie, Star Trek First Contact, which, I mean, is already going to put this story, uh, give it a, a winning uh, bracket in my head. So, yeah, this is um, my favorite story of all of the stories. This is Chris Geiger with It Gets Better. So the end of the world is coming, right? You know, although, in my opinion, it's kind of been here for all of us multiple times in our lives, as Sawyer kind of touched on Sanjay. <laughs> Right. Sanjay touched on. Uh, it's been here multiple times in our lives, uh, whether it was, you know, when you graduated high school or college or lost that job or, you know, got broken up with or broke up with somebody or moved to a new city. You've seen the end of the world and then you dared to move past it. And despite all of that pain and heartache that we associate with, like, those small end of the world moments, we really want the big one, don't we? We just really want that big one, despite what it implies, because it kind of offers a little bit of a safe harbor from those smaller decisions. You know, uh, we figure in this new world, all of those decisions will be rendered useless and meaningless, and the only decision that we'll have to make is whether or not to keep living. We figure in this new world, we won't have to worry about our bills or rent or, you know, tough jobs or tough friendships or old flames or material goods. No, 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 no. All we'll have to worry about is keeping our wits about us, trusty dog by our side and a cricket bat in our hand <laughs> and our eyes firmly fixed on the open road ahead of us. We really want the big one and we don't care how we get it, whether it's nuclear fallout, zombies, aliens, it doesn't matter. We just want it to end. And it's all so appealing. I get it. I so get it. But I'm going to be kind of honest, even though we have an end of the world theme show and an end of the world theme your stories, I fucking hate the end of the world as a trope. I hate it. Because it's a fantasy, which is fine. We're nerds. We love fantasies. But it's a fantasy propagated by fear. It's fear of the unknown, the complicated, the inconvenient. It's kind of like the, it's the same reason like why like white, old, stodgy congressmen hate gay marriage, for example. You know? It's because it's too unknown and too complicated and too inconvenient for them to understand. Uh, so what I like to see in my end of the world stories, I see the silver lining. I enjoy like the Dawn of the Dead and stuff like that because of that silver lining of hope, right? That this time in this world will have a bit more agency, that we'll have a bit more of a chance to make a better future and kind of take care of this fucked up world that we already live in. And there's a, speaking of like the gay marriage thing, there's a mantra used by LBGT teens to kind of cope with this increasingly fucked up world we live in that just says it gets better. That... You know, and even though that very firmly applies to them, it also applies to other smaller marginalized groups like us, the nerds, right? We've seen so many ends to so many worlds in our lives, whether it was high school or yesterday, it doesn't matter. We've, but we're the type that doesn't give into that fear, right? We boldly go 
into those strange new worlds. We seek out that new life that understands us and those new places to call home. And, you know, I've moved around a lot in my life. I've lost a, a home to a hurricane, you know, and I've seen things that I've cared deeply for destroyed by two tornadoes and an earthquake. Uh, I've loved and I've lost and I've lost friends and made new ones, just as I'm sure all of you have. And the binding force in all of that is that mantra that it gets better. That this time, even though the world is ending, it's actually a new bright beginning to be blinded by. You know, like, we always see the end of the world as the dawn of the dead. But it's probably the end of our world is going to be closer to Star Trek. <laughs> I mean, you and me, we're not, we're not Joe. We're not the hard-jawed, uh, leather, hard leather-clad survivors of that post-apocalypse. We're not the people that do that. We're, at best, the rebels of that long-forgotten city-state in post-World War III, standing in a field with James Cromwell as we look up into the stars as the Vulcans land for first contact. You know? And we have to believe that our vision, that our future will be brighter as long as we embrace that better ideal, that it gets better, and not give in to that vision of that dusty, orange, hazy horizon of a rubble-filled world. It gets better. Thanks. All right, we're going to end with a couple songs, as usual. Uh, this first one, uh, I am joined not by Dwight, but by Claire Friedman, a Nerdlogs member, who is easily one of the most talented people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Uh, I love Claire. She writes great, acts great, sings great, uh, which you will hear here. Um, we recorded this at the live episode we did at Challengers uh, Comics and Conversation, which is my personal comic book store. I love it. Uh, they're great guys there. They gave us their rogues gallery for a night, and we recorded this. And, uh, yeah, it was super fun. So here is Challengers at Challengers.
guys, uh, thank you all very much for listening. This maybe got a little more dour than I thought it would. But, hey, I mean, what is your stories if not uh, an attempt to be real? So, um, I hope you enjoyed me saying nice things about these storytellers. If you check back next week, you will hear other people say nice things about storytellers. Um, yeah, I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. And uh, we're going to take it out with this song. I mentioned at the top how much I love sing-alongs. This is by far my favorite sing-along. This is actually an original song. Uh, written in a band that Dwight Hassler used to be in called Statements Lost. Um, I played bass in that band for a couple shows. I wasn't their main bass player, but uh, I was exposed to this song then. And uh, it's a great, great song with a really cool outro. And we got the Nerlogs crew, everyone in the room, to sing in four-part harmony, which was fucking tremendous. It's one of my favorite moments ever of your stories, and I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do. This is The World Is Falling. I'd give him the low. The world is falling. The world is falling. Now here's a second. The world is falling. The world is falling. Good. Now here's a high one. The world is falling. The world is falling. Keep it up. The world. present your stories is sponsored by the chicago sketch comedy troupe the nerdalogs and is recorded the third sunday of every month at the upstairs gallery in chicago 6219 north clark street the stories you hear have been prepared and presented by the speakers on a volunteer basis your stories is recorded and co-produced by sean patrick boyle our theme song comes from the band state shirts for more information on the nerdalogs your stories and more go to www.nerdalogs.com